You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. Don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. Just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. In His grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. If your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you are a teacher, teach well. If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. If it is giving, give generously. If God has given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. And if you have a gift for showing kindness to others, do it gladly. Don't just pretend to love others, really love them. Hate what is wrong, hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope, be patient in trouble and keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people and don't think you know it all. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. Father, we thank you for your word, and we humble ourselves before you now. We acknowledge, God, that you are creator, and that we are creatures, creatures made in your image, redeemed by your Son, and sent forth into the world, empowered by your Spirit. May we capture that vision this morning and live it out. For your glory and for our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's jump in. Romans chapter 12, starting at verse 3, we'll work our way through. Verse 3, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each one of you. 
I had a good friend in high school. He and I were sort of middle management in the, in the high school hierarchy, all right? We weren't hated, we weren't loved, we weren't unpopular, we weren't popular, we were middle, middle management, right? And so people in that situation have to do what they can to get a name for themselves, to get a name that people might be attracted to, and especially 17, 18 years old, for me and my buddy, uh, that was about drinking as much as we possibly could. Um, we would go out every single night. I can't, like, it gets to 9.30 these days, and I'm yawning looking at my watch, right? Back in those days, it was all night, and just about every night, and it wasn't just sleep deprivation, it was intoxication. And this is a big reason now why I rarely drink, because I had had a lifetime's worth in my, in my teenage years, and this was the name that we garnered for ourselves. Our identity became, me and my buddy, we were the, the, the guys who could drink all the drink, right? And so um, the thing about my friend was, though, the thing that made it kind of sometimes irritating, often um, entertaining, was that he, on any given night, would go one of two ways when he was drunk. He would either go into super self-confident life of the party, or he'd go into deep depression and despair. And you would never know ahead of time where he would go. It was a lottery. And so his um, drunken identity was completely unpredictable, either into great pride and hubris or despairing despondency. And I think what Paul's getting at here in verse 3, what he's getting at when he, when he, when he asks us, not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but rather to think yourself with sober judgment, right? That's the opposite of drunk judgment. It's the opposite of these extremes that people are led to, either literally when they're drunk or just in the course of life, struggling with who they are. We tend towards the extreme of arrogance and pride or despair and depression. And what Paul wants us to do is, rather than having that view, he wants us to have a sober view of ourselves. This is so important for us in our day and age. You know this, right? Our day and age, this generation, these past 10 years, this idea of identity has become more important than it ever has been before in human history. Who am I? Carving out for myself an identity that I can project to the world. I am gay, I am straight, I am white, I am black, I am man, I am woman, right? These things have become more precious than ever before. This is the currency that we deal in today. Identity politics has become the means by which we relate to one another and that is so fraught with danger because you end up being like my drunken friend, you end up just oscillating between extremes depending on how well you're fulfilling the identity that you've given for yourself. And what Paul says is, hey, have a sober view of who you are. And for Paul, that means understanding that you and I are made in the image of God. That is our identity. Before we are man or woman or gay or straight or anything else, before any of those things, we are made in God's image. And that's the most important, most defining identity that we have. We are made in God's image. And, and just be under no illusions. If you were to gather the top ten most important ideas that have ever been had 
in history, that would be in the top three. I'm tempted to say it's the most important idea that's ever been had, that we are made in God's image. If you don't know history, you need to know that that is the bedrock of Western civilization. Without that idea that we're made in God's image, there is no Bill of Human Rights. It's when that idea is taken away that people start to treat one another like animals, like you can kill all the blacks because they're not human like we are. The idea that every single human on earth has value and dignity and worth because they're made in God's image is one of the most powerful ideas that's ever been had. And if anyone ever tries to tell you that that human progress and the idea of human rights has come out of a a, a post-enlightenment, rationalist way of thinking, they are wrong, utterly wrong. That came 3,000 years earlier. It came with the idea that we're all made in God's image. That is our identity. If you don't have that in view this morning, then you're probably either arrogant or depressed and you need to know neither one of those things is true. You're made in God's image. That's who you are, and that's whose you are. To have a sober view of yourself, and on that foundation, you can start building some things. You can start building a life of sacrifice and love. You can start to understand that not only does God value you, but he's gifted you to make a difference in the world. The idea that we're all made in God's image doesn't mean we're all the same. Yes, we're all made in God's image and we're all alike in that way, but that is not a cookie-cutter mould that we're shoved into. We're made in God's image and we're very, very different. Different in personality, different in giftedness, different in calling. The church is unity and diversity. Diversity in unity. That's why Paul's favourite metaphor for the church is a body. Makes sense, right? Like one body, many different parts. All kinds of things going on in this body that make up one whole. He loves that image of the church being a body. And so he says, encouraging us, now that we have a sober view of ourselves, who we are and whose we are, he says, verse 4 to 6, read with me. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, though many, uh, so in Christ we, though many, Form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. The big idea is that God has wired each one of us differently, gifted each one of us differently, so that when we are all using our gifts together, we produce something beautiful, something fruitful. Something that changes the world when we're all using our gifts. He mentions a few examples here, and the, the examples he gives through to uh, verse 8 are not, it's not an exhaustive list, right? These are just, I don't know, the ones that came to mind or the ones he perceived that the Romans need to hear about. But he says there, as we read, if, if your gift is prophesy, a prophecy, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. I think prophecy, the best way to understand it is, is not to think about it in terms of predicting the future, like Nostradamus was a prophet or something, and, and not to think about it in terms of the old covenant prophets, 
capital P prophets who, who God spoke to directly, who were able to say to Israel, thus says the Lord, right? And they were right every time. And if they weren't, they were killed as false prophets. Right? That's not how prophets function in the new covenant. Paul says we know in part, we prophesy in part. Right? We, we, when, when we prophesy, we're not saying this is 100% perfect dictation from God. He also says in 1 Thessalonians 5, you know, like, don't quench the spirit. Don't despise prophecy, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good, right? So that's how we come at prophecy. To define it, probably best defined, I think, by someone being gifted to apply God's word to a local context. Someone gifted to be able to take what God has said and apply it to this church or this individual at this time. It comes with a sense of urgency, like you need to know this now. God wants you to know this now. And, and a, a new covenant prophet doesn't come and say, well, that God is telling you you need to do this. No, they come with humility, knowing that they see in part, prophesy in part, but trusting that I feel like this is what God is saying to you now. We pray for this gift every time we preach at a corporate level. You might have experienced this gift either given to you or um, used for your benefit in your own life. I, I had this really important time where someone obeyed this text and it made all the difference to me. When I was at a sort of crossroads, I had spent three years since high school just traveling, working and whatever, and I felt like I need to, I need to knuckle down now. I need to make a decision about direction in my life. And I had Bible college on this hand and another course on this hand, and I was going this way. I, I had chosen to pursue not the Bible college thing. And that was coming down to the Monday morning where I was going to apply for the course or accept the the course. And that Sunday night at church, they get, had a little share, mic sharing thing like we do here. And I don't know, man, I just, I've, I felt like I had something to say. And so I got up and I said what I had to say, and then I said a bit more, and it's kind of turned into a bit of a sermon, and, and, and that's been happening ever since, as you know. But uh, after that service, uh, this guy, I think he was a student, um, doing a student placement at our church, and he just came to me, and this is like the kind of humility I'm talking about. He said, it was funny as well, he said, um, I ate pizza last night, this might be the pizza talking, but the whole time when you were sharing, I heard God saying, am I not calling you, says the Lord. Am I not calling you, says the Lord. And I think it's for you. And the way I heard that was not like, oh, this guy's a bit weird. It was like, God is speaking to me now. And it utterly changed my mind about what I was going to do. And not just changed my mind, but changed my desires. I suddenly wanted to do that thing that I believe God was calling me to do. And if he hadn't have said it, then who knows what happens. Right? God places this great responsibility on us to use our gifts. And if we don't, then we don't experience the same level of blessing or, yeah, I want to say blessing. Paul uses this body metaphor because if your members, if your parts aren't working, then the body suffers, he says.
So he mentions prophecy. He mentions some others here, leadership and mercy and, 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 and more. And, and it's worthwhile reading through that list and some of the lists in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 and so on to, to try and ask God, where, where have you wired me? Sometimes the best way to figure out where God has wired you is what irritates you most at church, right? Like, that's often because God has gifted you for something and it's not being done and it's not being done because you're not using your gift. We're talking this month about July being like volunteer month and I put my hand up and own that bad designation. It's, it's not about volunteering, though we do want you to sign up to do something voluntarily. It's not about volunteering. It's, it's a poor phrase for simply fulfilling your purpose as a Christian. That's what we're talking about. And so we got these cards, and Jimmy will talk more about them. should be on your seat. If not, they're on your way out. One body, many parts. It gives you an opportunity to sign up, and you'll notice, again, that list on the back isn't exhaustive. They're, they're mainly just practical things that we really need help with at our church. Up until this point, 10 years into this church, a few people have done all the things. And if you're here this morning, you're not doing any of the things, then that's why. But don't don't despise meagre gifts. Don't despise mundane um, action. These things are important. And my experience is if you sign up to do the garden, it often leads to, to greater things. It leads to more opportunities to exercise giftedness. I've seen that over and over and over again. So consider that card. Consider letting us know where you might like to serve. But this is not about filling a list of, like filling a roster. This is about us fulfilling our purpose as God's redeemed people. So I've said over and over and over again, right, this, these chapters, Paul gives us this most beautiful vision of what the church is like, and I'm just going to let him paint the picture, okay? I'm going to read nice and slow verse 9 to 16, and this, I'm, like, I'm just, I'm so attracted to this bride, Right, let, me, let me read for you, see if you are. He says, love, love. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. It's a beautiful picture, a beautiful picture of sincere faith, 
right, of living and loving sacrifice. It's a beautiful picture of making all of life all about Jesus. That's what it is. And it turns out this, this, this lived out faith, when the church does this, when, it, when the church actually lives like Jesus, it's not just beautiful to Christians. It's not just attractive to me and to you. It's actually really compellingly attractive, even beautiful to those who aren't yet Christians. So I love this organisation called McCrindle Research. They're a Melbourne-based company that do statistical research, particularly when it comes to religion and, and views of religion in Australian society. And I think it was 2016 they did their last big survey, and I'm going to share some results with you. So here are the top attractors to religion for average Aussies and the top repellents. Notice, top repellent for Christian, or not just for Christianity, but for religion and spirituality is 27% hearing from public figures and celebrities who are examples of that faith. I found that really shocking. Because here's what I hear from Christians. Ah, if only famous people would become Christians, then everyone would become Christians. Like we buy into that live celebrity that, that they're the pinnacle of society and that people will, if they become Christians, everyone else will. Like, oh, if only Jennifer Lawrence would become a Christian, everyone would fall on their face and worship Jesus. It's just not true. And it's, in fact, Aussies say, that's the biggest repellent. Don't do that. It's funny. You guys are laughing as well. Top attractor to religion and spirituality, seeing people who live out a genuine faith. That's awesome. I'm so glad that that's what Australians believe. That the most attractive thing about religion, it turns out, is not how many smoke machines you can jam into the building or how many sick guitar riffs you can do in the song, right? It's not about the, having the best speaker or the, the best building. To Australians, they want to see genuine faith lived out. Praise God for that. Why don't the Christians believe that? That's what the world thinks. Why don't we live that out? I'll tell you why. Because it's more costly than smoke machines. It requires sacrifice to live like Jesus lived. But it is so attractive to a watching world. Genuine, sincere faith. Love must be sincere. Be devoted to one another. Honour one another. Never be lacking in zeal. Share with the Lord's people. Practice hospitality, rejoice, mourn. These, these are markers of sincere belief. I don't care what you say you believe. What you really believe is what you do. That's why I think in some ways this section of Paul's letter is more important than the one that's gone before. I know that doesn't, we don't value things in that way, but all the theology that you can garner from chapter 1 to 11 is super important. Praise God for that. But if it's all here and there's none of this, then we're wasting our time and the watching world does not care. Love must be sincere. 
And this sincere, genuine, zealous faith is, is most impressive. It's most attractive. It's most incomprehensible, I think. Right? Most impressive, most attractive, most incomprehensible when it's maintained and when it flourishes in the midst of trial and tribulation. That's when it really stands out. Because a watching world is going to see you healthy, wealthy and wise, praising God for it all and saying, who cares? That's not impressive. You can say, thank you God or thank you myself. Like, who cares? But if you praise God, if you love one another, if you give yourself in the midst of trial and tribulation, that's something. That's shocking. I'll share with you an example of this. And I went deep into it this past week and I, I was, got pretty depressed because it's a horror story. It's a story that really got the world's attention. And it got the world's attention not because of the horrific events that happened, but because of the response that came after it. 2006, so 12 years ago, West Nickel Mines area of Pennsylvania, it's an Amish community. Another school shooting, right? This is a little bit different because it happened within a traditional Amish community. So there was one schoolhouse, kids from like three to... 18 mothers and aunties and uncles all there teaching and Charles Carl, Carl Roberts walked into the schoolhouse. He lived across the road. He walked in to the schoolhouse under the guise of having lost something on the road and asking the, the teachers if they'd noticed anything. They said no and then all of a sudden he switched pulled out a gun, he told the boys in the class to go out to his truck and bring in all kinds of implements of torture and destruction, brought them before the class. He dismissed the boys, dismissed the pregnant women, and then he took the girls, little girls, and he divided them, took ten of them, and then he shot eight of them, killing five of them before he killed himself. Girls aged 3 to 13, destroyed all in a second, in a moment of madness. And that was shocking enough, right? That's, that's a horrific example of evil in our world. But what really got the world's attention was what happened afterwards. I mean, immediately afterwards, that afternoon, members of the Amish community went to the house of the man who had killed their daughters, comforted his widow, embraced his parents and extended forgiveness to them. And when the money came rolling in from the nation, trying to support them in their grief, this, this, this money that was given out of a sense of sympathy for them, they redirected many of the funds to the family of the perpetrator to try and heal what they're experiencing, their grief, support them. When they held the funerals, like with the, the little caskets, right? When they held these funerals, normally in, in Amish 
culture, the, the funerals are very private affairs, but, but on this occasion they invited in the family of the man who committed the murders to be part of that process. And this was shocking and it was incomprehensible, but for some people it was something to be frowned upon. There were many critics who said, this is too automatic, this is too soon, you can't just forgive your enemies like this, this is wrong. This is fake, this is sick. And what the critics of these people failed to realise was that they were simply following the example of their Lord and their Saviour. That, that this was real to them. This is real. Not that it was easy. I watched an interview with some of them 10 years after the fact and they were saying, this is still not easy. This is not cheap grace. This costs us. Sacrifice costs us. But they believed the gospel. They believed Paul when he says in verse 17 to 18, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And so what they were doing was trying to do away with the old natural man. Right? The, the nature that we have that seeks recompense and retribution and revenge. That is the most natural thing in the world. Right? Humans have done it for all of time. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That's how the world works. And they set that aside and instead followed the example of Jesus himself. And this gut, like, just think about it for yourself. Think about your, your own experience of brokenness. Because there are many in this room who have experienced horrific things. Part of the reason my friend stopped being a pastor was because he couldn't deal with seeing these things anymore. Having a front seat to people's misery it was too much. And I know, I know that feeling. Right? There are people in this room who have experienced terrible things. How do, we, how do we not pursue what is natural in seeking revenge? I think revenge at its basic, when you break it down to its basic components, revenge is motivated by an anxiety. It's an anxiety that this person not get away with this thing. Someone has done something wrong and they're going to get away with it. We have to stop that. And so we pursue retribution and revenge and we make them pay. The antidote to following that base desire is to know this. Verse 19, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay says the Lord. Knowing this truth, that no one gets away with anything, I think is the key 
to not pursuing vengeance ourselves, but rather trusting in God's justice. You need to know that. Those of you who have suffered great things, you need to know no one is getting away with anything. Every careless word will be judged by God. And on the last day, every human who has ever lived will be judged. And either they will be held accountable or Jesus has already been held accountable for them. God's wrath flows against all sin, including every careless word. And Jesus has either taken it upon himself in your stead, or God's wrath will flow undiluted on your head. That is the reality. God will judge. And that's why he says, leave it to me. I don't miss anything. I don't forget anything unless it's been forgiven because of my son. I love the way that Peter says it to his church. Remember, Peter's writing to a church that is being decimated. Decimated by the Roman government. Persecuted. Chopped in two torn apart, imprisoned. He's writing to that church and he says in 1 Peter 2, to this you were called church, suffering church, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Verse 23, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. We need to know what Jesus knew. We have a just judge and no one gets away with anything. So therefore, do not take revenge, my dear friends. So then, in our dealings with one another, in our dealings with family, friends, church, in our dealings with our enemies, in our dealings with everyone who's been made in God's image, we're called to follow Jesus' example. And the, the beautiful thing is, the astonishing thing, the often surprising thing is, is that when we follow Jesus' example in this, often our enemies will follow him too. I said often, it may not be often. <laughs> That's up to God. But this is, this is the thing. This is the powerful paradox of the Christian life in that when we respond to cursing with blessing, it can often have an incredible effect on those people who are cursing us to the extent that they can be led to faith and repentance. There is Examples of this throughout history. 
You might have examples of this in your own life, that the shock of being blessed in response to being cursed or giving curses can be powerful enough to lead someone to the Lord. That's what Paul means by this obscure couple of verses. All right, then we'll finish on this. Verse 20 to 22, he says, On the contrary, instead of taking vengeance, if your enemy is hungry, he quotes Proverbs, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This image that he's got from the Proverbs is this, right? In the ancient Near East, you would often have different cultures who would, um, who would embody repentance and contrition with kind of like self-flagellation. Like, I'm, I, I know that I've, wrong, I've done wrong, and now I'm paying for this wrong in this various way. It happens in some cultures up to this day with, you know, cutting yourself, for example, to pay for sins. And strange way of understanding atonement and repentance, right? But in the ancient Near East, and particularly in the, the areas where Egypt had a big influence, which was most of them, right? They had this practice where if you were caught doing something wrong or if you confessed to doing something wrong, you could embody your repentance and contrition through self-flagellation. One of the ways was to take a, a bowl of burning coals and carry it around on your head. And that would be your way of saying to everyone, I've, I've done wrong, I repent. That's probably what's happening in the Proverbs here that Paul is quoting in his own letter. He's saying, as you shirk your natural gut instinct to take revenge, and instead you give blessing and grace and forgiveness, just as you have been forgiven, in doing that, you will heap burning coals on your enemy's head. You might just lead them to repentance. May it be true of us. Imagine if that was the case. If we were known as the community of people who returned cursing with blessing. And that that had such a powerful effect on people that the community around us was changed. That perpetrators would come to repentance. That once evil men and women would have burning coals heaped on their heads as they come to repentance. I love chapter 12 of the book of Romans. We saw last week that Paul is painting this picture where the the people, the bride of Christ, the church, this body, embodies his sacrifice, his living, breathing body and soul sacrifice for the sake of his glory and the good of all people. That sacrifice means loving one another. It means living out practically these beautiful truths that we hold so dearly. It means giving ourselves, giving our gifts for the sake of others. It means giving up revenge and in its place liberally offering forgiveness and grace. My prayer through this time, and I'd love you to be praying as well, is that as we see more and more this masterpiece 
that Paul is painting for us of the church in action, that God himself would be moulding us and shaping us and brushing us into that image. I'll pray for us. Let's pray together.